What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Ben. And I'm Scott. And today, oh, wait, hang on, Scott. I forgot. I was. I can't believe I was about to start an episode without my good luck sip of coffee. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you always do that, don't you? Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, it's a bit of a superstition, you could say. Or is it an obsessive compulsive disorder? Ah, or is it a vital, real part of making a successful episode? It could be that. I mean, it could be the whole reason that this all, this is. that's the fabric that holds this all together. That may be it. Now, Scott, would you say that you are a superstitious person? Definitely not. And I was thinking about this because, I mean, I'll walk right under a ladder that's open. I, I don't care about the number 13. Mm-hmm. I've broken a mirror before in my life, a couple of mirrors in my life when I was younger. You run perpendicular to black cats. <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly on a right. Constant basis. All the time, as much as I can. Yeah. So I, um, I, I honestly am not superstitious at all. Uh, as we get to the end of this episode, I'll tell you, like, I think I have a little bit of com- compulsions. Okay. But not anything obsessive and not anything dangerous or anything. Uh, and that's why I drew the distinction. So we'll call you for this episode Scott the Skeptic Benjamin. Maybe. That's probably a good yeah. one. Yeah. How about you? Were you uh, are you superstitious? Um, you know what? I I mean, I know you've got the coffee thing. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I have a lighthearted idea behind some of it. Um there's clearly there, there's clearly a fascinating folklore surrounding superstitions, and we do know that the placebo effect is real. So sometimes when people feel that they have done some sort of important ritual, it can affect the way they think about what they're doing, which could affect their performance. But as for actual bad luck from walking under an, a, a ladder or the 13th floor or putting the wrong foot on the ship when you first set off on a voyage, all that stuff I think is largely bunk. Yeah, I think so too. And um, I think, I think later as well as we'll find out in this, I, I want to say that it was Danica Patrick that said, you know, there's nothing really to these until you start putting stock in them until you, right. you know, then they become real to you and then it becomes a real thing. Right. Like I, I'll, I'll share some uh, compulsions that I've picked up with you as well when we get to the end, but 
Today, ladies and gentlemen, Scott and I did not come here just to say that we think a lot of superstitions aren't real or, you know, don't have value. We came to talk about one of the most notoriously superstitious professions in the world, athletes. Yeah, that's right. All athletes seem to have some type of superstition. And, and we see this in, you know, in uh, the times of, let's say, playoffs. Yeah. Um, a lot of, the, you know, the, the teams won't shave for the entire playoff season, mm-hmm. the, the entire postseason. I can only wear this T-shirt. That's a very common thing. Yeah. Or, um, I you know, I have to wear this specific type of socks and they have mm-hmm. to be, you know, one has to be pulled up, one has to be pushed down. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got all kinds of different superstitions. I, I tie my shoelaces in a very particular way and at the very particular a very particular time right like maybe not until after the uh the ceremonial first pitch is thrown out that's when i lace up my shoes and i do it this way every single time and it can be something more involved too like uh i go to this specific place to eat this specific dish every day before a game or before a race or something yeah. like that all of these rituals have an important part in each of these uh these people's lives and and you know it, it gives them some form of confidence and i was thinking about this because uh, how do you gain confidence usually i mean and confidence first of all is essential for success in sports I mean, absolutely you've got, you've got to be confident you have to go for it exactly right and you gain confidence by uh, a couple of different ways, like experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to know your strengths and your weaknesses. And know the strengths and weaknesses of your competitors. That's exactly right. You have to maintain focus. You have to uh, you have to hone your skills once you do know what your skills are. You hone those skills and yeah. you work on what you don't know, right? So you work yeah. on whatever you're, you're lacking in. Um, you have to take risks. That's another one. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to kind of take, also have to take lessons away from the losses. So when you do lose... Take a lesson away from that. And who knows? Maybe that's the birth of a new ritual for a lot of, uh, of them, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, you know, I, I ate a, you know, a six egg omelet before I, I came out for, uh, you know, the game today. Yeah. Bad luck. That was bad luck. And I'll tell you why, because it was six eggs. To begin with. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that one, maybe, but, you know, a, different, a certain type of sandwich or something like sure, that. Sure, sure. Like a Reuben. Exactly right. I had a Reuben sandwich and then we lost a double header. I'm yep. never ever going to have another Reuben sandwich on game day. That kind mm-hmm, of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so learn from the losses as well. You know, I mean, that's, I guess that was wrapped into the uh, the confidence thing, but yeah, um, you know, the birth of new rituals based on losses is another thing that we could look at here. But um, another big group of people that we we don't really think of a lot with superstitions, I guess, would be motor racing. Yeah, which is uh, this is an idea that you came to us with, and I thought this was fantastic. This is from a How Stuff Works article that you edited, right, Scott? Yeah, it's uh, let's let's just put it this way, Ben. As it as it stands right now. Early June 2014, unedited, unpublished on the site, but it will be. So, you know, listeners can go out and check this out eventually. I'm not sure exactly when it's going to get uh-huh. there. Let's 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 shoot for late June. How about that? <laughs> right. And uh, we want to go ahead and say that we're going to be naming ten superstitions uh, from the racing world, but these ten are by no means. All of the superstitions. Yeah, that's right. And I want to give some credit to our writer here. It was uh, Cherise Lapine, and who does a fantastic job. Exactly right. And we've uh, and you know recorded a couple of episodes mm-hmm. uh, based on content that she's provided for us. And uh, this is another fantastic example. So let's just kind of step through these uh, these ten superstitions from the world of motor racing, and that's going to be the name of the title or the article, by the way. <laughs> and um, see what we've got. So you want to start with number ten, Ben? Yeah. Yes, sir. Number ten. Getting dressed. Now, this won't surprise too many people because 
uh, the getting dressed in the morning or the evening or before any kind of event is inherently a ritualistic thing for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You know, um, funny story, actually, when I was a kid, one of the superstitions I had when they when people used to say uh, they put their pants on one leg at a time like everybody else. I thought that was supposed to be some sort of passive aggressive statement about how that was a way stupid people put their pants on. Mm. And so for as a kid, I thought that I before a test or something like that, I thought I would be stupid or not perform as well if I put my pants on one leg at a time. So I'd like sit on the edge of my bed, see, ritual and stick my feet out and then put them on both legs See, at a time? This is a ritual, Ben. <laughs> right before a test, this is what you would do, right? right you would yeah. you'd change it around a bit. Now, see, there's drivers who do something similar. They've right. got these superstitions about the way they dress. It's not it's not so much the, what they wear because they know what they're going to be wearing. Right. It's got to be the order. It, yeah, it's the order of events. And so a lot of drivers, like um, I think one that's mentioned here is Brian Scott. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a superstition that um, he's heard from other drivers that the right side of the body holds all of the luck, which is a weird thing to think of. But, <laughs> um, so that, that I mean, as far as when it goes to getting dressed, you would put on. Uh, you know, your boxers, your pants, your socks, your sleeves and gloves and all that goes on, you know, on the right side of your body first. So your right arm or your right leg is whatever goes into the garment first. Yeah. I've never heard of that one. That's weird. I've I heard haven't of, I've heard of people um, maybe put it on one sock and then one shoe or, or both socks first and then both shoes or, right. you know, and, and the order is important as well. Like, you know, like right first or left first. And that's very important to people. And all these weird little eccentricities about the way you get dressed. Oh, Scott, do me a favor and remind me to come back to this one later. Also, Ben, this made me think, and now this is going to be for our older listeners. So I don't know, I don't know if you're going to remember this or not. Yeah. All right. The show with Archie Bunker on it. Was that all in the family? Is that right? Uh, I do not know. Oh, I think it was. Okay. Archie Bunker, he was uh, sitting on the bed with Meathead one day, you know, his uh, <laughs> son-in-law that he right. called Meathead. And this is a, like a, a funny little bit that you can find video of online, I'm sure. But they were arguing about how they put on shoes and socks. And one of them wanted to put on two socks at one time and then two shoes. And the other one was arguing, well, that's a stupid way to do it. You put on one sock, then one shoe, and then one sock, and then one shoe. And that's how I do it every day. Yeah. And it was like this back and forth. And it was hilarious when they did it. I don't know, looking back now, you know, 30 years ago. If it's aged well. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure, but look, <laughs> look for that little bit anyways. And that's, that's exactly what we're talking about because people have a particular order in the way that they want to do things and, and it matters to them. Everything matters on race day to, to race car drivers. Right. Yeah. Even, uh, number nine, which caught me by surprise. Yeah, this is a strange one. This is even more strange than the previous one. Mismatched shoes. So there's a guy, he's an F1 driver. His name is Alex Wurz. Mm-hmm. And Alex Wurz uh, has apparently been right at, well when he was racing because he was a, a driver from 1997 to 2007. And he's got two 24-hours um, of Le Mans victories as well. So accomplished driver. Um, but he supposedly, he wore two different shoes, types of different colors of shoes, yeah. you know, like mismatch pair. And supposedly he thought that brought him good luck throughout his career. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't believe him, but you I, know, maybe it's true. I don't know. And the thing is that this one can be traced back even further than him. You know, could, right, there were other yeah. drivers that did it. I'm not sure who was, I think he's the most famous for it. I'm not sure that you can point to one person and say they always wore mismatched shoes. Maybe you can if you're a historian. Well, there are similar things to, you know, the idea of mismatched socks, uh, like uh, Stefano Modena. Uh, you know, uh, he also wore one of his gloves inside out. 
Um, now that's a weird one. Yeah. And I would wonder if they would even work the same way. Like, would uh, would a fireproof glove work the same way if it was inside out? I'm not sure. I'm not confident that that the uh, that the sanctioning body would even allow that. Right. Yeah. Weird. This is probably not something you're supposed to do. And Sharice uh, makes a really good point here that you know maybe you shouldn't follow a superstition if it creates a handicap. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense then. Maybe she was saying that. Maybe that uh, you know something is causing you to. Uh, yeah, well, maybe that's not what she's getting at there. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I, she's saying maybe it's time to draw the line there when it goes past something relatively innocuous to something that might damage your performance. You're right. Got it. You or somebody else, but you know, I was thinking more along the lines of safety with the glove thing. But oh. again, then again, maybe there's nothing to that. That's just a strange habit. So mismatched shoes. That's number nine. If you want to move on to number eight, I think this is one yeah. that a lot of people have. I mean, I think, I think more drivers than we would, you know, even oh, be yeah. able to mention. Oh here. yeah. Carry a lucky charm. Uh, okay. Let me just be honest. Uh, completely subjective mm-hmm. here, Scott. I usually hate this stuff. Really? Yeah. Cause you know, I don't like touching metal or jewelry and often look, you don't have to be a race car driver to practice this one. Cause you've, you've been in somebody's car and some of our listeners, you might have your car kitted out this way mm-hmm. where you have a bunch of stuff hanging from your rear view mirror. Sure. Like, uh, like St. Christopher's medal is really common and stuff. Yeah. Um, these lucky charms aren't my thing. Uh, but a lot of people, not just athletes really believe in this. And that's why you have people who have a bunch of stuff on their key ring that is meaningful to them or a lucky charm of some sort. Yeah. Now, I think in the world of racing, we're talking about like maybe a coin or something that they keep in their pocket and they would, you know, before the before the opening lap, they would rub it with their thumb six times. You know, that's the that's the ritual. You know, it has to be very specific. Others, you know, they may have a medallion that they wear or a picture that they always keep in their, uh, you know, their their left front pocket or something right, like that. Heart. So these lucky charms, you know, I mean, we mentioned, you, you mentioned like lucky coins, rabbit's feet, things like yeah. that, that people carry around. But, you know, racers, they're, they're more into, they have to keep things relatively small. You can't have something hanging from the rearview mirror <laughs> yeah. of your race car. Really. Can't be like, this is my lucky donkey pinata yeah. <laughs> that I sit in the shotgun seat. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Or, you know, um, what was in the NASCAR? Uh, Jocko Flacco. Jocko Flacco. Yeah, I mean, I have a lucky <laughs> monkey that rides with you in the uh, in the race car. You can't, oh, I love that monkey story. You can't do anything like that. But um, like, you know, maybe wearing a pin like um, Tazio Nuvolari, who who, uh, sure. who wore a tortoise pin, sure, as kind of his lucky charm. And uh, you know, so small things like that. Sebastian Vitel, um, I guess he's got a lucky coin that he keeps yeah, with him. And it all time. goes back to the confidence. You know, it might be uh, a token or. A souvenir that someone in your family gave you, and and you know what, you don't even have to really have he- have heard about this for it to be happening because you know a right. lot of these guys. I know that they've got something on them that they do, maybe they don't let anybody know about it because that's part of the thing to them is that it's a secret. Yeah. Um. Okay. Speaking of a secret, I will I will admit that I regularly participate in number seven. Do you really? You, I do. This is talking to the vehicle. You talk yeah. to your Monte Carlo. I talk to my Monte Carlo. I talk to other people's cars. I talk to uh, a surprising amount of inanimate objects in the course of the week. You're like the Chevy Whisperer. <laughs> are you trying to? Are you trying to? Are you trying to like? What are you trying to do, Ben? Are you trying to trying to coax it uh, into uh, fixing itself? Are you trying to? Uh, are you trying to assure it? What are you trying to do exactly? Well, sometimes I mean, for me, largely it's a rhetorical thing. You know, I'm just. Okay, all right, buddy. Where where are we gonna go today? Oh, I see. If I have the time to drive, and this it's more of a soothing thing. I don't. I'm not under the impression 
that it shapes the performance of the car. Mm-hmm. Um, it but, makes you feel good, though. Yeah, it's just it's it's just bonding with an inanimate object. You know what? Uh, I've I've been there in that place before. Yeah. Like, okay, all we have to do is make it to the next stop. You know, yeah. and, I, and I think to myself, like, what did I just, I just talked to the car, like, all we have to do, I mean, you and I, mm-hmm. I mean, really, it's up to the car. And, uh, I, I had before in some previous cars, I'd had what I felt were full blown conversations just because, you know, when, when you own a car for, or just drive your car for a certain number of years, I'll say if you drive a car continually for more than five years, especially if it's an older car, then you get to know its ins and outs very well, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, so, yeah. So you can have conversations where just based on your timing, it sounds like it's replying to you because, you know, they'll say, oh, here we go. I got what's wrong. What's wrong now? And then right then, ding, 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 mm-hmm. um, it can pop up. And that was a trick that one of my that one of my grandfathers used to do. And I thought as a kid that he could actually talk to his car. Had you fooled into believing the car he was had responding. Me, oh, he had me so fooled until I was about six years old. But <laughs> it's like chitty chitty bang bang, you know? <laughs> like it has a has a life to it, you know? Yeah, like there's yeah. there's something behind there. there's a soul there almost. Uh-huh. And I think a lot of people feel that there's a, a like I guess a lot of people do feel like that. Like there is a soul to their car. Like they're communicating with it and they're 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 helping it by coaxing uh, whatever it is, like I mean, it's like a you know a race winner, uh, yeah, coaxing coaxing a winning race out of your out of your race car or your your motorcycle and mm-hmm. and race car drivers, like I mean, for, well, let's take a for let's example motorcycle motorcycles first, yeah. Uh, Valentino Rossi, he's mm-hmm. known for for kneeling next to his bike before he mounts it. Now this is a um a MotoGP rider, um, so he's he's accustomed to. Uh, or rather known for kneeling next to his bike and then also talking to it, mm-hmm. uh, which helps him, as he says, mentally prepare for the challenge ahead. Now, I I completely understand this. And I yeah. think this is more him talking. He's talking to the bike, but he's also talking to himself. I think he's psyching himself up for this race. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's what a lot of that sort of conversation is. The literary term is apostrophe, right? You know, when you an apostrophe not the grammatical apostrophe, but um, in in terms of uh, grandiose speeches that we hear in old stories where someone looks out toward the sea and they say, oh, you ocean, thou dost, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. That's, a, that's an apostrophe. And I think that that's what these things are. They're, they're rhetorical. I don't. I don't think any race car driver right now honestly believes their vehicle can hear them. And if you think your vehicle has a soul, then I challenge you to think very carefully over whether you're hanging out with a chitty, chitty, bang, bang or a Christine. Ah, very <laughs> good point, Ben, because uh, very different souls there. I, you know, I just recently watched uh, some some clips from Christine. I'm going to I'm going to rent that movie again. Yeah, I'm going to rent the whole thing. You know, I just watched the whole thing start to finish again. But mm-hmm. fantastic story. I love that one. Also. One last thing we have to add for this is this talking yeah. to the vehicle. There was a little side note here about this one. It says that dancing was always an option, too. And uh, this is kind of funny. <laughs> this, I, I looked this up on Snopes, Ben. This is, um, yeah. this is something that is filed as legend. And I'm sure that you can find footage of this happening because it's such an unusual thing. Um, one of the co-owners of Michael Andretti's car would do a dance in front of the car before the race, shaking a cigar at it as he as he did this dance. Weird. And that was for good luck. And that is so bizarre. I mean, can you imagine somebody dancing in front of the car, shaking a cigar at it every time? Well, I, I can, but we work in the city. And again, that, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it has to be 
that, you know, that was something that he had done right before, for whatever reason. Yeah. He decided that, you know, I'm going to do this before this race. And then that was a, a victory for them. So, or a, a good standing or whatever, you know, they at least made the podium maybe. Um, and apparently it was good luck and they just kept it up. Well, uh, okay. What do you think about this one then? Entering the vehicle from one side. Oh, now I've got a couple things I got to say about this. All okay. Right, lay now, it on me. now I understand, you know, that, Okay, you and I, we always enter the car. If we're going to drive, we always enter on the driver's side, and that's that the way sense. you do. You don't, yeah. you don't have like a, you know, a feeling that you have to get in on the passenger side every time or something horrible is going to happen yeah. to you during, you know, your rush hour commute. In an F1 car or an Indy car or anything like that, you have an option. You can enter for you can you can climb into the cockpit from you know the what would can be considered the passenger side, the right side of the vehicle, or the driver's side, which would be the left side. Or, you know, it depends on where you are, I guess. If in Europe, it could be the opposite way around, right? Mm-hmm. But some drivers feel that, you know, even in these single cockpit seats or cockpit cars, rather, that you get in on one side every single time and you do it the exact same way. You know, right leg first, then the left leg, then I lower myself in. You know, there's a, there's just a, a pattern, a way to do it. And they feel that that brings them some luck. Like, I always approach the vehicle from the left front, but I always get in on the right side every time. You know, that's that's just the way that it happens. Right. And... I don't know. I mean, there's there's something to it, I guess. Motorcycle riders, they've got a, a you know choice as well, but some motorcycle riders will only do it from one side as well. They will only mount the bike from one side or the other. Mm-hmm. So Valentino Rossi is another, I mean, this is another one of his superstitions. Yeah, and as you'll notice here, listeners, one thing that we're finding is that quite a few of the superstitious practices involve a ritual as well, you know, the, the whole idea of a lucky charm, Scott, I love that you pointed out there's often a ritual that they have to do with the coin, for instance. That's mm-hmm. not just the coin alone. Uh, so if you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Before we go on, all this talk about rituals made me think of one of my newer rituals that I have acquired. Oh, what's that? That is that I am watching Netflix Instant on Saturday mornings, the way that you would watch cartoons, you know? Mm -hmm. I'll do some laundry. I'll be cleaning up a little bit around the house. And it's nice to have something on in the background, right? Uh, Because sometimes NPR won't cut it. And you're fantastic with Netflix recommendations. So I've got to ask, Scott, do you have anything new for me? I do have something new, Ben, but I'm going to suggest that you actually sit down and watch this one. And I just have it on as background. Okay. Because this is one that um, visualization in this one is everything. I mean, it's it's called mm. Double Indemnity, and it comes from 1944. Uh-huh. And there's a lot of, like, shadow play going on and all this stuff. I mean, there's... It, Everything is visual in this. You really got to watch it. And I, I, the only reason I say that, you know, that's so important is because I took a film appreciation course in college, I think it was. This mm-hmm. is one of the films that we watched. It was a great film to begin with. But then, you know, have you ever had a course like that where you take and, and you know, like you'll never look at films the same way ever again? Like Absolutely. What, you, you see, you pay attention to the very first thing that they show you in any film from that point forward. The very first image that you see in a film is very important. Mm-hmm. And then... Then you realize, like, okay, the way that they've got the shadow on the protagonist's face, the way they've got the shadow on the antagonist's face. The, the angle of the camera. Exactly right. And, you know, like, there's there's light outside of the house, but as you enter, it's darkness. And, mm-hmm. you know, all these uh, all these different things come into play here. Well, this is a, a perfect example of all of that. And, again, it's from 1944. It's directed by Billy Wag- uh, Wilder, rather, and it stars Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. And, uh, Edward G. Robinson, there's a, there's a whole host of, uh, you know, people here that are part of the cast that, you know, went on to do many, many other films. And it's a great example of film noir. And mm, if you know I anything did, about film yeah. noir, I mean, it's, it's, you know, this cinematic high drama, you know, from Hollywood back in that, it, that era. And it particularly emphasizes, like, themes of, of cynical attitudes and sexual motivations. And there's a, a lot of tension in these films. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's also, oh, I'll tell you about it in just a second, but um, the summary of this is that you know, there's a smitten insurance man, and his name is Walter Neff, and he and uh, the femme fatale, who is, uh, you know, Phyllis Dietrichson, who is played by Bar- Barbara Stanwyck, they kind of plot this perfect murder against her husband, and they want to, uh, you know, make this accidental, I'm air quoting, accidental Uh, death Mm -hmm. um, happen in a certain place at a certain time in order to be be able to collect a double indemnity on his life insurance, which means it pays double. Yeah. Um, So there's this lots of scheming and and conniving going on between the two of them, and uh, it really is a a gripping story. And the film is also, and what I love about this, maybe the most, Ben, is that this film has kind of that 1940s-era rapid-fire dialogue that a lot of those films of that era had. And it's so quick. And I don't even know if I can really come up with a lot of it right now, but it's amazing stuff when you hear it. It's like this back-and-forth dialogue that is just loaded with double entendre. And it's just, there's so much tension throughout this whole film. It's just Mm -hmm. fantastic. A great film. And there's a lot of cars that you should pay attention to as well. Ah, yes. So here's the angle for car stuff. Now, some of it takes place on a train. That's not giving anything away, really. And, um, 
You know, the insurance man, Walter Neff, he drives a 1938 Dodge Business Coupe, which appears quite Ooh, often in cool, this. Yeah. And she, the, uh, you know, the femme fatale, Phyllis Dietrichson, uh, she drives a 1937 LaSalle touring car. Now, these are cars that you'll see in museums and yeah. you'll see them, you know, in concourse events and They're places huge like that. Too. And the rest of the cars in the, in the film, they may go through the early 1940s, but they're mostly mid 1930s cars and they're spectacular. Wow. So that alone for any fan of older cars will make it worth the price. Also, uh, Double Indemnity is a film school classic, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, so you can check out Double Indemnity for free on Netflix Instant. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, for free, I mean, for 30 days, Ben. Oh, yeah, that's right. So you don't have to just watch Double Indemnity. If you go to Netflix.com forward slash car stuff, then you will be able to watch anything you want on Netflix Instant for free for a month. Yeah, that's right. So that's a load of material. Yeah. I mean, and and Double Indemnity, I I know it's black and white. Stick with it. It's an awesome story. It's really, really good. Mm -hmm. I think our listeners would really appreciate it. Speaking of something that we really appreciate here, uh, Scott, I have to point out, number five, I can appreciate this one because this is a superstition that goes across the Western world in some ways. The number 13. Yeah, this goes so far as to have affected buildings. Right. There, mean, yeah, we are, we ride an elevator with no 13th floor button. But yeah. as Mitch Hedberg said, people on the 14th floor, you know what floor you're really on. They know what's going on. They, they know, know what's up. They know what time of day it is, right? <laughs> they know what time it is on the streets. Right. I don't know how to say that, Ben. What's the saying? Uh, I like they know what time of day it is on the streets. Something like that. It's, eh? uh, they know what time it is. That's yeah, probably, uh, yeah. I've, I've, uh, I've extrapolated that to be something way too long and cumbersome. <laughs> but, uh, anyways, this, this goes way back. I mean, I, I don't know how far back the, uh, the actual number 13 superstition goes back but of course race car drivers don't want the number 13 associated with them in any way and nascar is one area where you'll find that they they go to great lengths to uh keep their drivers from having to deal with the number 13 right yeah yeah uh just like in a an elevator in a lot of western buildings you will see the numbers jump directly from 12 to 14 in the nascar pits the the uh the numbers are distributed so that there is no thirteen. That is so strange. I mean, so you could, you're not going to be working in the number thirteen pit in a NASCAR competition ever. Mm-hmm. Um, this is weird. Now the 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 driver thing. This goes back and what you know, as we said, it goes back farther than I really know. But I mean, obviously they're affected by it as well. And one guy that uh, really didn't like the number thirteen was Joe Weatherly. Yeah, and he once qualified in thirteenth position for a NASCAR race. And now the Weatherly, Weatherly was a driver pre-1964, as we're going to find out. But right. um, he qualified number thir- in the 13th spot, but he asked NASCAR to allow him to start as position number 12A. How weird is that? I like it because it sounds somehow better than 12. I guess so. <laughs> and and the thing is, you know, like uh, other forms of racing, they don't like it as well. I mean, obviously, uh, Michael Schumacher. Yeah. Um, he's established a preference for odd numbers in a race car, but 13 is one that he will not choose. Right. Yeah. But some people buck this trend. This is what's interesting about the 13 superstition and racing in general, because there are a couple of racers who will say, you know what? I want this unlucky number. Yeah. That's weird. Isn't it's it? my number. Yeah. Strange. I, I've seen it before at, you know, smaller tracks that, you know, the number 13 cars out there. Sometimes you'll see it in demolition derbies or things like that. Sure. You're, where you're just going to spray paint the number in your car, but to actually pick 
the number 13 for your race car for the Formula One season. Yeah. Ah, that seems like, I mean, okay, I said I don't believe in superstitions, but is that a risk? I mean, is he taking a risk by doing that? I mean, is it a, just a mental thing? Like, I right. Mean, it, I, it must be. I mean, I, I don't know how that would affect him. I guess, you know, this guy, uh, Pastor Maldonado, I mean, he's one that's decided to take his chances with number 13. And, um, you know, an F1 driver. So, the un- unlucky number 13, I guess, is it really that big of a deal? I mean, I guess motocross racers are affected by it the same way because uh, there's a there's a magazine called Motocross Action. And Motocross Action magazine says that a few prominent racers have somehow managed to reverse the trend in, in recent years uh, because a handful of riders have decided to choose number 13 specifically, like to right. seek out number 13 as their number. So... I don't know, it's kind of strange, Ben, but it it happens that way. Now, I know in F1, I believe they uh, have recently changed the, the rules so that you can choose your permanent number, which was something they didn't do in the past because right. you were only, you were, give, you were assigned a number based on your ranking in the sport. Now, NASCAR and other, other sport, other racing series, uh, you were able to pick a number that was your permanent number through your career. So Dale Earnhardt was always number three. Right. I, I mean, I think, you know, a point he changed his number three and he stayed with that. Um, I'll have to look in the history of that. I'm not sure. And, er, you know, Earnhardt Jr. was number eight, and that's just the way it goes, right? Right. And recently, as of 2014, F1 drivers have been able to select a number that's going to stay with them for the rest of their racing career. Yep. And, uh, so, so this, uh, this Pastor Maldonado, he's wrapped up number 13 for himself, and we'll see how it pans out. We'll see how it pans out. Now, we do know that some of the superstitions in the racing world come from um, perceptions of actual events, right? Yeah, tragedy sometimes. Right. Which leads us to number four, $50 bills. Yeah. Now, uh, you might not know this if you're not too familiar with the inside baseball of racing, or I guess the inside track would be a better way to say it. Of NASCAR in particular. Of NASCAR in particular, not just racing in general. Um, so Joe Weatherly, who we mentioned before, two-time NASCAR champion, had two $50 bills in his shirt pocket during the 1964 race. Unfortunately, during this race, he died in a crash. Mm-hmm. And so the legend of the unlucky $50 bill began when they found the cash in his pocket. Yeah, so they, I mean, this is just one of those things. They associate the $50 bills. He had two $50 bills in his pocket. They find them in the wreckage on his on his body, and they assume that that is what caused the, the wreck. And now, this seems odd. I mean, you might think, well, that could have been anything. He could have had his car keys in his pocket. You know, and sure. think about NASCAR at the time. He might have had his car keys in his pocket. You know, right. His, yeah. His ride outside the track. But um, that's not something that came to be associated with the superstition. It was the $50 bills for whatever reason. And that that superstition is still around today. Uh-huh. I mean, even as recent as, as, again, Dale Earnhardt. We just mentioned Dale Earnhardt with the number thing. Uh, Dale Earnhardt, he was perhaps the best known driver to avoid $50 bills at all costs. He just didn't want them around. And superstition didn't end in 2001 when he passed away. Nope. Uh, other drivers like Sterling Marlin, he won't touch a $50 bill as well. And let's keep in mind, it's not just $50 in cash. They'll take, you know, two twenties and a 10, but, uh, it's the $50 bill specifically. Like Scott, you remember how the $2 bill was often considered unlucky? I do. It's like that. Okay, got but it. Just right. for NASCAR. Um, there's something else which seems very interesting to me because I'm always a little bit hungry, and that is eating specific foods. Ah, uh, yes. Now, this is one that uh, I think we mentioned this early on in the podcast. Right. That, uh, Danica, Danica Patrick, who you know drove an IndyCar for a long time and now is in NASCAR, 
Uh, she said that she tries not to let superstitions develop because, you know, once they're in your head, they become real to you. It's right. something that uh, you start to believe in. And that's that's the, the power of these things. Right. Well, <laughs> at the same time, you know, she says that she also says, I have certain foods that I do like to eat on race day. Right. And it's easy to see how these things can develop. In fact, I think that most people would be surprised if you think about it, you probably have some sort of ritualized food thing in your life. It might not be something that you eat right before a race because you're probably not a professional race car driver, but it might be something that you always eat before a test or something that you you go out to celebrate. You and like your kids do a a regular thing every Friday. You take them out for pizza. Or something you swear as uh, like a hangover cure. Oh yeah, you know, like the day, the day after you've been out drinking or something, you know, like I always have to go to this uh, this this diner and have yeah, this sandwich, and that's it. That's and what put does sriracha it. on it. Yeah, exactly that type of thing. It could be anything really. Um, you know, maybe when you get in the car, you always have to have a diet coke. Right, like yeah. uh, Sterling Marlin. In his case, won his first Daytona 500 after he ate a bologna sandwich in 1994. <laughs> yeah, so guess what he does before every single race? Now he eats a bologna sandwich. And he swears that that's what, uh, what, what gives him luck. And guess what? He didn't win every single race. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so, so maybe there's some bad baloney. Yeah, in there. maybe. Well, what about, uh, Marco, Marcos Ambrose? Oh, uh, I love this. Another one. NASCAR driver. He's a, an Australian native and he's fond of his natives, uh, his native country's distinctive Vegemite spread as part of his pre-race meal. Now, yeah, is there I anything wrong with that? Love it or hate it. I mean, yeah, you're right. You love it or hate it. Have you ever had it? Yeah. Okay. I've never had it. I've heard that uh, some people have a, a strong aversion to it, though. Yeah, yeah. I've had Vegemite and Marmite. Um, Are you a fan or not a fan? You know, I'll eat it. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great. You see me too. We'll laugh together. We'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I see. <laughs> okay. All right. That's en- that's enough. All right. Got it. All right. So you know. Anyways, yeah, this is this is his pre-race ritual. His pre-race meal, and uh, that's what he finds works for him. So that's what he does. Let's get a little more specific, Scott, as we move toward number one. Yeah, you know, and was, I want to point these out that these two, these last two, these go way back in time. These are very old. Yeah, these are very old. The, the, the number two and number one uh, superstitions are very old. All right, number two, peanuts in shells. Yeah, that's a strange one, huh? Yeah, so you can you can still have shelled peanuts at NASCAR events. But if the peanuts are inside their shells, across motorsports, people will think you're being a jerk. Isn't that really weird? Now, the thing is that concession stands may sell them. I mean, sometimes that happens. It's it's actually some – I think at some places they actually ban them. They say that they can't shell, sell rather <laughs> peanuts in shells. Yeah. yeah and, and it's tough to say. It's like a C, C, she ah, sells peanut shells by the shell station. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, okay. So th- this is still such a real superstition, even unto the point of what drivers do and don't allow in their pits. Yeah. So see, I mean, when I say that, you know, sometimes the concession stands will sell peanuts that are in shells. They don't allow them in the pits. They're, they're banned from the pits at some NASCAR events and some other, I mean, just motorsports events in general. Cause they're bad luck. <laughs> Isn't that weird? They're bad luck. And, and the way that this come, came about rather was all the way back in 1937, Ben. It goes, it goes back to two separate events in 1937. Same year. That set the precedent for this whole legend. Now, this is according to Snopes yeah. and it comes from the first incident. It comes from the Langhorn Speedway, which is in Pennsylvania. Yep. And I guess two vehicles in that particular race straight off the, um, straight off the course, seconds apart, both injured or killed spectators on the way. And then at the Nash, uh, Nashville fairgrounds that same year, four or five cars collided, resulting in the death of a driver. So, um, you know, both yeah. tied to fatalities. Ah, and here's where we start to see a weird wrinkle in the stories in both of these incidents. Witnesses claim that peanut shells were visible in the record. Yeah. Official reports don't mention this at all. Yeah, that's right. So the wreckage contains peanut shells, shells in particular, not not you know just peanuts, but the shells. Right. And there's there's a a good reason for this. Now there's also documentation that goes back before 1937, right? So you know they say that you know this is um, founded by other other wrecks happening as well, you know, other fatalities sure. that happen. All but, anecdotal. Exactly right. But you got to remember this, that before World War II, car races mostly took place at fairgrounds, and peanuts, of course, were a popular treat at those fairgrounds. So the thing is that, you know, they, they were around. They were obviously, you know, people were eating them. The drivers were eating them. Uh, you know, the fan spectators who were probably walking up to the vehicle itself were eating them. Maybe someone tossed some peanut shells in the car before the, the incidents happened, just, you know, I guess it's just uh, like coincidence. Really. So it's like a sinister version of the old banana peel bit, um, you know, a bit. Yeah. Where somebody is walking down the street and they slip on a banana peel. But in this case, it's a car 
somehow wrecking due to peanut shells. Yeah. Now the weird thing is that, of course, the shells are going to be scattered everywhere at a, at a, a you know county fair or something like that. They're going to be all over the place. And you know, at the time, I guess that you know it was a little bit more lax about how close you could get to the cars. You could walk up to them in the pits and you know talk to the drivers. And the drivers themselves may have been eating peanuts during the race. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, that that kind of thing actually happened. So inevitably, shells would end up in or in or near the cars, and you know, the, if the crash occurred, they would blame the peanut shells and not, you know, the uh, I, I guess the fault of the driver in this case. Which is why, ladies and gentlemen, when you go to meet your favorite race car driver, don't bring shelled peanuts. You know, what? I would say, don't don't bring peanut shells. Don't bring peanuts in general. Um, maybe just don't bring any snacks. Ben. Maybe just don't. Maybe just don't show up. Uh, eating a sandwich. That's maybe a good, that's you know, a good bit of advice. Constant snacking looks weird. And I, I say that as someone who's been through the fire. You go, on this you're one. a constant snacker? Uh, I'm a constant snacker. I'm surprised right. I'm not eating right now. Alright, so there's a possible logical explanation for the peanut shell thing. Yeah. Okay, yeah. got it. There's, it, well, there's a possible believable story of, uh, origin story, maybe. Understood. Not like a scientific explanation. Alright. But for this one, for number one, Noel, if we could get some dramatic music leading up to this. The color green, which is odd. Yeah. I mean, but we're talking about the color green as far as uh, the car, the color of the car itself. Yep. Now, the green car superstition goes all the way back to 1920. Now, 1920 is when a guy named Gaston Chevrolet, who is the brother of Chevrolet Motors co-founder Louis Chevrolet, he was driving a, a green car and was killed during the accident. Right. And from that point forward, the color green quickly slipped in popularity, you know, like as far as the rankings go. You know, like when, you know, drivers would say, like, I, you know, whatever car they're ordering or the right. team or, was ordering, because it wasn't quite the sponsor-driven thing that it is now, which comes into play here in just a minute. Yep. But, you know, as far as, like, teams being able to choose colors at that time, uh, green dramatically slipped in ranking after that 1920 wreck. And primarily just in racing because, of course, a lot of people will say, well, guys, what about uh, British racing green? Oh, ever the classic. I mean, ever that, the classic. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you would still drive that today, and people didn't have any kind in, of association with that on the road. In your daily driver, no, yeah, no. for a, a civilian car. Strictly race cars. But uh, it's true because a lot of people really didn't want to get behind the wheel of a green car. Mm -hmm. They're like, what are you going to do next? Throw peanuts at me? You jerk. That's right. Now, the problem with this, Ben, the modern problem with this is sponsorships because we know how sponsorship-driven racing is now. Absolutely. Especially NASCAR. Yeah, absolutely. You see a car that does not have visible sponsorship, then it would be odd. Yeah, that's exactly right. And everything is about sponsors and, you know, you, uh, the badges all over them, the, uh, the, the, the way the cars are painted. Now, what do you do in a situation where the, 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 the sponsor has green primarily as its logo? Let's say you're driving a John Deere car. Yeah. Or you're driving a Mountain Dew car. Great. Yeah. Or, um, you know, remember the Skull Bandit? From way back when, I mean, that was a that was a long time ago. But you know, the the, the Skull Bandit was another green car. How about the GoDaddy car that Danica Patrick drove for a while? Yep. That was green. Yep. Um, and we're not talking about all green. Some of these, you know, like the um, oh, let's see, which one? The um, I think the the FedEx ground car. This the the modern example that I can think of here. The, that was uh, that's primarily a black car, but it's got green elements to it. Yeah. So those are. Cars that have green on them, I think that some of the drivers are kind of bucking this trend recently, saying that, you know, it's not necessarily a green car that really bothers me, because these cars are out there, and they have to do it for the sponsorship, so 
I don't know. I, th- I think this is one that's, uh, that's fading in, uh, in the race car world as far as being an actual superstition. Yeah. But, uh, now it's time for us to talk a little bit. That's number one from our list of 10. But now yeah. it's time for us to talk a little bit about compulsion. Oh, before sure. Before we close out the show, right? Sure. Now you said you had something to say. You, you don't feel, Scott, that you particularly have any superstitions, but you do feel you have a few compulsions. Well, I think I do. And by that, I mean, I don't think that I have anything that's like diagnosable. No, nothing like that. Like I don't have to flip light switches 10 times before I leave a room or something like that. But I mean, I think I have like sort of have rituals. I mean, like closing the garage door every day. I do have this thing, like, if I, if I don't say it to myself, like, even almost mumbling it to myself, like, okay, the garage, okay. The, like, I, I pull out of the, the, the garage, you know, as I'm leaving, you know, I push the button, and then I look back one last time, and I say to myself, the garage door is closed. Oh, okay. and I And I do that, and I even my, maybe even just mumble it to myself in autumn, you know, no one can even really hear it. The garage door is closed. Yeah, that's right. And if I, if I don't do that, and I get to the end of the street, and I haven't thought to myself, okay, I, I know that that garage door is closed. I'm going to have to turn back around and come back and check to make sure the garage door is closed. That's that's the type of thing that I mean. That's interesting. And, and I have like other little things like that, like um, you know, I check the door locks and the alarm at night every every night in the house. Yeah. But I do it in a certain pattern. Like I always do a certain door first, then I go to the next one, the next one, and then I check the alarm system, and then I go to bed, and that's that's my ritual. And I don't think that's really an obsessive compulsive thing or not. No. But, but it is a ritual. You know, it's, it's something I, that I, I do every single evening. I mean, maybe it's a touch of OCD, but I think it's it just becomes part of what you do. And I, I don't think it's like, um, you know, the people that have to wash their hands continuously. Like, I don't feel like it's something like that, like nothing that I need to go to, to be concerned about. Really, No, I think it would be more of a disorder if you found yourself constantly waking back up and going to check everything again. Yes, that's right. That's right. I, do you have any of these? Do you have any kind of like, um, I guess not obsessive things, but but rituals that you have? Sometimes. Sometimes I catch myself with a couple of little things. Uh, I don't care for routines, but I do have some rituals that are important to me. If I'm sitting down to write something in my spare time, you know, uh, then I alter my environment based on what I'm going to going to be writing hmm. so if i was doing if i was writing something for car stuff or something for uh how stuff works you know then i will i'll usually be drinking coffee hot and i eat a certain kind of thing when i am, am doing this and then i play a certain type of music typically uh hugo montenegro and uh, any uh, Morricone, the good, bad, and the ugly. Really? Yeah, I play that soundtrack. Interesting. I, it's if you looked at my history, my you know internet history on how stuff works, it's just lousy with Hugo Montenegro and and these Western instrumentals, um, because it gets that ritual kind of gets my brain prepped or primed mm-hmm. in in that mode. And so if I'm writing something else, if I'm writing you know, fiction, horror, science fiction, something like that, then I will do something different. I'll, I'll drink, uh, I, I have very specific drinks and music for those as well. And part of it, I think, goes back to the idea of how profoundly impressionable our, our consciousnesses are. Consciousnesses, boy, that's a tough one too. You got it though. Thanks, man. Uh, it, anyway, how profoundly 
vulnerable and sensitive to an environment. Uh, the, our mental states can be. So ritualizing something is a way to get your, your brain and your focus and your intention on board with whatever it is you're about to do. And you know what? People carry this to every little aspect of their life. I mean, if you're getting ready to uh, to work on your car, you may lay out the tools in a certain way every every time. You may, right. before you cut the grass, you may do certain things that you do every time the exact same way, and you've just always done it that way, and that's the way it works for you. So, you know, you're making my rituals look mundane, by the way. What do you mean? I mean, oh. mine, mine, you know, checking the doors and that type of thing and saying the garage door is closed, that I'm seems kind of silly. but your ritual look mundane. Uh, <laughs> But you are. It's uh, you've got uh, much more complex, uh, you know, s- situations or, or scenarios going all around, like what you're doing. I mean, that's uh, that's interesting. I well, never knew that about you. Well, thanks, buddy. But I'm crazy. So uh, of course I would have stuff like this. <laughs> you know what? I wonder. I wonder just how over the top some people go with these rituals. I mean, oh, I wonder. It can be bad. And, it can and be I, tough. I mean, because there's a point where it becomes uh, like. It, it hampers your ability to do whatever you were setting out to do in the first place. Right. If you have to open and close the door 72 times every time. Well, that, see that, now that becomes the, that, that breaks it into the obsessive compulsive disorder right, yeah. where you do need to go seek some type of help for that because that becomes something that, that causes you more trouble than anything, really. I mean, you may right. even not be able to get to whatever you were doing before. Like you may, you may lose a job because you know, your, your hand washing obsession is so bad, something like that. But, you know, the ones that we're talking about for racing, these are guys that, you know, they just have simple things that they do before the race and it works for them. So, yes, yeah, so this is what, this is what I, I submit to you, uh, Scott and to listeners, um, as sort of a defense of these kind of superstitions, especially the ones that ritualize a behavior. Mm-hmm. What if this works? What if it works furthermore because it is a way of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, some sort of low-level hypnotism or meditation mm-hmm. that these drivers are performing on themselves. Um, I think that's possible. And in I some cases, that. yeah, in, in some cases it may be advantageous even because we always hear, or I've been doing a lot of reading, I guess, about what's called the zone. You know, you hear chess masters talk about being in the zone and athletes. And and one of the questions that's been going around for a while is how do we scientifically explain this concept? Have you just one little sidebar here? And this is, and we'll get off this quickly. Have you ever, have you ever really been around a, a race car driver or anybody who's about to participate in a certain event and they put on what they call the game face? Yes. Have you ever seen that? Because there's a moment in time. I mean, you can watch this happen to somebody yeah. where they're they're joking and talking with you and, you know, laughing. And, you know, maybe uh, in the case of like race car drivers, I used to be around tracks all the time with Chrysler and I'd, I'd interview race car drivers and they'd be fine and happy and everything. And we'd do an interview. And I mean, there, there'd be just a moment where you could just snap and see it happen. And mm-hmm. it would just like like wiping your hand over your face. And it was like the, they were focused. I mean, dead on focus on what they were doing. And it, they had their game face on, and that was what they were doing. They were just, they were just in the zone, like you said, maybe a little differently than you know, like, you know, like a basketball player or something sure. in the zone. You know, like, and, it, and it's sure. the whole thing. But I'm talking about like before the race, the pre-race stuff. You could wave, talk to them, try to get their attention. They're so focused on what they're doing. It's like they've got on blinders. They're, I mean, they're yeah. just, they're just focused on what they're doing, and it's important. I think it's, it's a very important part of the, uh, the sport to be that focused. And, and I think that some of these guys, you know, I mean, I think the ritual is part of that, of that whole thing. Like, you know, once, once I get in the car, I, 
you know, make sure that I rub that lucky coin five times or whatever with my right, finger. And yeah. then, and then from that point for like, from that point forward, it's all about this race and nothing else. I'm not going to think about what's going on at home. I'm not going to think about anything else, but just what I'm doing. Not the lap I just ran, not the lap I'm running. I'm just going to exist in the now. I'm going to try to get to that checkered flag yeah. and that's all I'm going for. And then after that, I can think about it, all that stuff again. Yeah, that's, that's true. I think that's how, I think that's how it is for most people who have the experience of being in the zone. Time slows down and, and the idea that there would be psychological rituals people engage in to, to arrive at that point seems normal to me. In fact, listeners, I imagine that you probably have a few rituals and or superstitions of your own. Uh, Scott, I'd love to hear them. I would absolutely love to hear these. I mean, if we have people that are in professional, you know, racing, of course, but any other type of, type of professional sports, sure. do you have any kind of game day ritual that you do? Or yeah. even if it's just, you know, um, non-competitive, you know, softball league or whatever it is, if you have a ritual, let us know it. And and I mentioned a few that were not related to sports or anything in right. any way, but just rituals, um, superstitions of any kind, really. Just, just let us know. It's interesting. Uh, uh, and... Specifically, I can think of a few of our regular listeners already, but I'll just name one. Uh, Richard, our limo driving friend. Yes. Uh, I, I'd be really interested to hear if there are any limo superstitions. Oh, there might be. Yeah. Yeah. There's there probably a, a, a whole list that we don't even know about. And all of our, all of our, uh, ladies and gentlemen out there trucking as well. I'm sure that there are so many stories. If not you, someone you know probably has. Probably has a superstition or Good two. Good point, Ben. All these subcategories have their own mm-hmm. little ritualistic things that they do or their superstitious things Law that they do. Law enforcement, firefighters, oh, EMTs. I'm, pretty, I'm positive that those guys have something because, I mean, it's a it's dangerous position they put themselves into. It may be different for every single person, but maybe yeah. there's a maybe there's something that's known across the uh, industry. Service. Yeah. So let us know uh, anything that you've heard related to this, uh, even if it's, not something you've personally experienced. I would love to have enough of these submissions to make a show just about that because the more we dug into this, the more fascinating it became. Definitely. Yeah. And they go way, way back. So, uh, it's not anything that's, uh, that's brand new by right. means. So, uh, go ahead and let us know. Find us at Car Stuff HSW on Facebook and on Twitter. That's not all, folks. We also have our own website, carstuffshow.com. We would really appreciate it if you go check it out. Uh, that's where you can find every single one of our podcasts, which, Scott, it's embarrassing to admit, goes all the way back to... Uh, 2008? Yeah. Yeah, we've got something, I mean, in the ballpark of like maybe 575 or something like Oof. that. That's a lot of episodes. Yeah, and we've never done an anniversary episode or anything like that. It's no, always just been grinding them out. More car stuff. That's right. One after the other. And if and you, one more enjoyable than the next. Yes. Yes. One would hope. Uh, and to do that, we want to always make sure that we have interesting topics, which is where you come in. Uh, so, guys, if you have a recommendation for something we should cover in the future, a suspicious story, or rather a story about superstition, <laughs> then you can uh, email us directly. There's a big difference there. Yeah, there is. <laughs> yeah, so you can email us at carstuffdiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. 
Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids, no plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at Viking.com.